Welcome to the Jimbo Podcast, where you can find all your favorite Jimbo Show content in one place. Interviews, prank calls, bits, and a whole lot more. And now, here's your host, Jimbo. All right, it's another Jimbo Podcast, and I want to share with you guys a special series I did with my brother. We're in a band called The Surrealers. We've been there uh, for a while now. Uh, back in the 90s, mid-90s, we released an album called No More Milk, which you can find on all streaming services. Um, and you spell the name S-U-R-R-E-A-L-T-O-R-S, just in case you're looking at the streaming sites and want to check us out. But we did, uh, my brother George and I, we did a, a series of shows where we kind of took the music and took the influences of our childhood since we grew up together. And we kind of uh, broke down different things. And uh, it was quite interesting we we actually play, we were able to play a song from one of our albums to show you the influence that particular uh pop culture moment or album or tv show had so here it is the jimbo podcast presents the series that we're running the next few weeks the surrealers on welcome to the surrealers on on this episode george and jim talk about the rem album life's rich pageant all right, it is the Surrealers on. We're back for another show. I am Jim, and George joins me. On the coronavirus uh, phone, yes. On the hotline. So we are here to talk about R.E.M. and Life's Rich Pageant. I think it was the album that changed it all for me with R.E.M. I really wasn't completely into R.E.M., even though the Surrealers is a trio. We started, I think, the first uh, song that Matt showed me that we wanted to play as a, as a cover. Uh, was Can't Get There From Here, which is on uh, Fables of the Reconstruction. And I wasn't quite sold on R.E.M., uh, besides a couple songs, but this is the album that did it for me because I think it was like it got me into repeated listenings, and I think R.E.M. is one of those bands where you have to kind of listen to over and over again. Yeah, I didn't realize um, before uh, Matt had showed us, I, I had heard Can't Get There From Here, but I did not realize it was uh, R.E.M. And you're right, Um this is the one that really got me interested in them. Um, it's just a really, a really, really solid album with some, um, some really quality songs on it. And I think, you know, our band um, in the early days when we were a trio kind of patterned ourselves after these guys. I mean, you know, we, we weren't as good as they were. I had songs where we tried to at least vocally, um, with the harmonies and stuff, try to try to do stuff like them. And I know a lot of Matt's writing, since he was such a huge fan, uh, really, really kind of uh, fed off REM uh, and their influences a lot. We're talking about Matt Stevens, who uh, who passed away a few years back, but he was our our first bassist and the guy who got got us kind of all into the alternative sound. And I remember when he ever talked about like uh, Michael Stipe's voice, he'd be always like, "Oh, oh, he can sing like a bird." Oh. This is great, you know. So he would just he would get overexcited, especially for this album, and I think the album before, Fables and and Murmur, and everything that came before. I think he got me into. But this is the one. This was the gateway drug <laughs> into REM for me. Uh, hearing the very beginning song, which is uh, "Begin the Begin" or "Begin the Begin" or however you want to pronounce it. I don't know what you, what's your interpretation, George. Uh, well, my my thought is is you can't understand him his lyrics anyway. Yeah. So I don't think it really matters which one it is. And I never even heard um, the correct title of it. But 
one of my favorite songs on the album and it's a great way to start the album yeah, as well. Yeah, a great riff. Yeah, it's it's uh and the thing about it is is as I used to we used to work for Pepsi you and I and we used to drive around and and I used to drive in a uh I think it was a Monte Carlo. I'm not sure of my first car. Do you remember my first car? It was it was big big and blue. I bought it from Mr. Hayes down the street and It was yeah, it was it was a Pontiac. Yeah, I don't know if it was a Monte Carlo, but it was a I think it was, it was a Pontiac. Pontiac. It was some sort of Pontiac, big, giant, old car, and I had a tape player. <laughs> and during this song, there's that one part where it breaks down and it has that big feedback, which I, I don't know how Peter Buck got, but it's it's uh, pretty amazing feedback on there. And I always return it all the way up. I still do it when I'm in the car now. I turn it all the way up as possibly as loud as it can go. But um, just an amazing song to kick off the album, and it, and it goes from there. I, you know, it's it's like the first two songs are like at a very high BPM and it comes down to fall on me, the third song. But these days, right after Begin to Begin, you think they would maybe go with something softer, but it, it hits you right in the face again. Yeah, and then you go, you, you said about Fall on Me. That is such a, um, I, I was really surprised that that wasn't just a huge hit um, because it was such a great pop song and really was kind of the, um, the introduction probably to them moving more towards a, a pop influence because that just really has a great hook into it. And then you go to Cuyahoga, which is, uh, has another great hook. And, yeah, that, and some, uh, follow me. I think you're right. I think they thought, I think everybody thought like probably IRS records thought the same thing. They thought, Hey, this is, this is going to be the breakout hit, but they, they realized they had to kind of wait a whole other album for document to come around with one. I love and, and a couple hits off that. But it, to me, it sounded like a hit of the day. <laughs> you know, when it came well, on the album, I thought, Oh, this is the hit, you know? Yeah. And fall on me is, in my opinion, is a much better song than the one I love, but I think, like you said, once they got to that point, the um, the record company started really pushing that, and it just became a hit. But uh, if, if, if for my druthers, "Fall on Me" is is one of their best songs um, ever. To be perfectly honest with you, for my if, if, if you're asking me, I think that's one of their better songs ever. And then you had. Um uh, Cuyahoga, like you said, right after that, and with the great bass intro. I know Matt was our bass player, and he always would play this in practice all the time. The oh, yeah. <laughs> yep. Yeah, it sounded just like it, too, because he had that Rickenbacker guitar, <laughs> you know, yep. and it, right. it would sound just like the intro. We never actually played the song. But then you go to Hyena, which is, uh, you know, uh, <laughs> begins with some laughing hyenas. <laughs> yeah, I love, you know, to be honest, I think this is my favorite song on the album. Um, just just the, the hook that it has in it, too. And I've always, when I, when I listen to this album and I kind of skip around, this is the song that I always end up coming back to. Uh, over and over again um no idea what it's about it could be about anything but it's just got that uh it's just got a fire to it that's really good and then you have the uh the instrumental semi instrumental underneath the bunker they do say under, underneath the bunker but actually this is kind of funny because michael stipe just kind of updated this on his instagram page for the whole um covid and you know being secluded and everything he did a little parody of his own song i forgot what he nice. called it but he said i think he was like hiding in the bunker or something but this is one of those songs where it kind of shows you almost like rem has a kind of a uh, it's either a, a nod of humor or just kind of like wanted to try some other stuff or just throw some, some quirky stuff in there. Just, you know, basically do whatever they want to do. I'm going to guess that they were just goofing around in the studio 
and and Don Gaiman, the producer, had the tape on, and they listened back to it and said, "Oh man, we'll just stick that on there because they didn't list it." So it was one of those things they probably just threw on there. And you know what? I I didn't realize until recently when I was looking at uh, some information on this album that that it was recorded at. Uh, at John Mellencamp's studio in Indiana. I didn't, I never oh, wow. put that together. I thought, you know, they're like the Georgia royalty. I thought for some reason it was done, you know, where are you? And it's kind of got, it's kind of got that Mellencamp feel to it. Too. Yeah. That, that so. kind of, that kind of drum, that big kind of, uh, snapback drum situation going yep. with it. Um, and then you have, uh, after that you have, I believe, which, uh, you know, if I'm not mistaken, that starts with the little banjos, you know? So, uh, mm. I think the uh, that song is a great song, and then you go into what if I what if what if we give it away, which is a song we actually did with Matt. We did it a lot. It was probably one of the better covers we did. The only problem is when we did this song, nobody knew it. They thought either it was our song or it was just some some really obscure song. Yeah, when we did stick it in the list, it, you're right. Nobody knew because it kind of blended in with the other songs that we had. But it was always a good cover to play because. Uh, it had those that that OI part, and uh, always it was always fun to sing and play drums to at the time. And it had an easy lick on guitar too, which which helped for me helpful for me at the time. <laughs> and then you go into uh, just a touch, another rocker, and then Swan Swan H, Swan Swan Hummingbird, which was remember when we went to the concert at uh, Astro World. Uh, yeah, if you remember Ed, that was kind of like they had the shirts, and they kind of had Swan Swan H at at the. Uh, uh, the back of the shirts and I was trying to figure out, is this the next single or they just kind of like really think it's kind of cool. Cause I remember some sort of, it was a swan, but it looked like a duck that was uh, written on the back of these shirts. Was it Michael Stipe wearing a dress that night or something? <laughs> I think so too. And the, the opener was fetching bones, which, uh, <laughs> I, which I think they're from Georgia too. But I remember, uh, I, you know, Robert Olive, who was a friend of ours who just had this kind of wacky, crazy sense of humor. He still does. Uh, he, uh, he just likes the dumbest stuff. So middle of REM set, I just yelled out fetching bones and he just started laughing. So we started, people started turning around, looking at us like, wait, you want to see fetching bones over REM? But, uh, that was an amazing show. It was kind of weird. Astroworld. Now I think about the shows that I saw at Astroworld here in Houston, you mentioned Astroworld. Now most people think Travis Scott, but it was actually had the, had the theme park and they actually had the, uh, what was it called? Southern star amphitheater. Southern Star Amphitheater, I think the first show we saw there, me and you, was uh, before the actual theater was built. The very first show, I think, out there was Chicago on the, um, on the uh, Chicago 16 tour. Yeah, it was when right they, before 17, because I remember it was... Uh, it, it was, was a comeback. Yeah, it was Bill, uh, Bill Champlain was on there, but I remember they did all the songs from... Uh, announcing that uh hard to say i'm sorry was a new song and also love me tomorrow was a new song and yeah that was a great concert. i don't know if you remember either <laughs> they let us in the gate there was no seating so we must have run 200 yards <laughs> from the entrance to try to get close to the stage and i just remember being so out of breath after that, it was unbelievable. <laughs> but yeah, we saw that one there, and then the REM. I actually saw, um, I saw Tears for Fears there. Which oh wow! At Astroworld. At Astroworld, yeah. I, I, I was also saw Amy Grant. I remember the, that show. I, I think I was at the Amy Grant uh, show by. 
I think I don't know how I was there, but but the one the the one thing the show I remember from there is was we worked there for charity for our student council. You could work at Astroworld for a day to make money for like trips and stuff. So we worked there for one day, and it was the Billy Idol concert. Oh, really? <laughs> and it was completely packed, and they had us. You know those guys out in the parking lot who are waving people to go park their cars. Yeah, my myself, uh, Billy, and TJ, friends from high school, were out there for three hours, just dying, no break, oh, just waving. But I remember, yeah, that was that was a nice, that was a good place to watch a show, though. Um, it was even if you were on the hill, it was good. And the Billy Idol concert ran late. He did must have did Eyes Without a Face like three or four times. But I remember they they didn't realize since I was a bigger kid, they they thought I was actually a, a seasoned worker. They're like, "Come on, we're gonna work security." I'm like, "Hey, I'm just a high school student. I gotta get out of here. Our, our bus is leaving." So, <laughs> but but the but the REM show. It uh, was was great. I thought, you know, it, like you said, he came out in a dress, and they were rocking pretty much. It was pretty much the feel of the album, even though you get like murmur and you get some of those, the the older stuff, which has got more of a birds like a feel. And uh, Life right. Pageant had add a little distortion to it. They uh, it was it was a rocking performance. I remember that show though. Michael Stipe. I think people were starting to take pictures of him, and he's he was like in no mood for it and started yelling at the people in the front <laughs> row, as I recall. Um, it was a lot better. I not, think that show was a lot better. We saw him like a couple years later with the document tour, and it was at the Sam Houston Arena. And then remember that guy with the big hair in front of us? And it just seemed like yeah. it just seemed like it was when they were indoor for some reason. It just didn't have the excitement that REM had on this live. Well, I mean that tour. was that was a historic place here. I mean the Beatles played there um, back in sixty um, sixty four, um, but it was all concrete. So everything was bouncing off the wall. And I remember uh, we're all there, me, you, Matt, I think Robert Olive, maybe one other person, maybe maybe the lost soul of Andy White. Uh, that might, Andy White might be a whole show in itself. But um, Matt just, all of a sudden, he just took off. We're like, where'd he go? Yeah. He just took off. And after, <laughs> after the show, we see him. He's like, we, we were kind of on the side. He's in the middle I mean, he he's got his he's got his shirt tied around his his waist, and he is just soaked. So he must have just gone off and just I, it was like he ran a marathon. But he <laughs> and then the rest of us are you know going we're looking at him with our thumbs down because it really wasn't a very good show. I think they had sound problems and like I said, it was bouncing off of the cement. And Matt goes, oh man. <laughs> That was one of the greatest shows ever. <laughs> All right. No, I mean, the music was good. Like you said, there was that arena was just a little bit uh, older. Not good. Yeah. But yeah, um, good. Uh, yeah, that was uh, <laughs> Matt would do. He was a big, he's a big REM fan for sure. But the only problem with, with, with document too, you mentioned that. And I, I don't know if you remember this, the album that followed Lysford pageant, Matt thought it was so different and didn't like it. He actually brought the, the album back to the music store. Well, he brought it. No, he bought the CD. Yeah, and he brought it back and got the album because the vinyl because he didn't want to pay that much money for the CD. I, whatever. Cause, yeah, because he yeah. said the music wasn't as good, or, or which is crazy for an REM fan. But anyway, uh, back to Livestreets Pageant. They found, they end up the album with Superman, which was you know we thought it was, possibly could be another hit too, which was a cover of a of a, a band by in Beaumont, Texas called the click <laughs> did back mm-hmm. in the 60s, which is, you know, REM took it and made it their own, which is probably, you know, great song. We used to cover that a little bit, not as much as what if we give it away, 
but uh, still a, a great way to close out the album. And they have a deluxe edition that was released a few years back, and they actually have all the, you know, how they do these days, the demos. Yeah, they have, all the, they have all the demos and stuff. But I think this was the last, like the end of the innocence almost for uh, R.E.M., um, because after this, they had document which started to get a little bit more pop, you know, where people that didn't recognize them before did. And then after that, they went to Warner Brothers and, um, you, you know, you had out of time and uh, you had um, uh, green. There was a, yeah, there was a different feeling at Warner Brothers. Not saying those songs are bad or those albums are bad. It no, was, not at all. It was just it a, was a di- different. It's almost two different REMs because you listen, they have greatest hits packages for both IRS and for uh, Warner Brothers. And, you know, it's like, it's almost like two different bands because, you know, Automate for, for the People is almost like a completely different band from the band that did uh, Murmur. <laughs> you know? Yeah, I mean, and, and I love Automatic for the People. I think that's, that's, I think that's, I think that's I think, their best album. I think that's a show in itself, you know. Yeah, and it's, it's, it's just, when I mean the end of the innocence, it's kind of like they jumped from um, indie band to, to big band, um, especially with one I love. And uh, I don't think there was any turning back after that. And then after, you know, after automatic for the people, they, everything kind of started getting weird. Um, and, um, and then, you know, and then that was the end of four or five albums later. And it's weird too, that one of the biggest hits now that you hear from them is it's the end of the world as we know it. And I feel fine. But that was one of the songs that Matt had a real problem with because he thought Mm -hmm. it was just such a departure from, from murmur and, uh, you know, reckoning and all those early albums that got him into REM. He, He even loved the, uh, the uh, the covers album, which Dead Letter Office, you know, which I thought was really good too. But uh, that the whole change to have them experiment, you know, I guess that was one band he didn't want to ex- experiment. <laughs> you know? No, he didn't want them to experiment at all. But I mean, I, I don't think I, I don't think life's not life's respect. Document was that far removed. Um, no, especially when you listen to it now, you know. But if you listen to like. Uh, out of time, which I thought was a pretty good album too. Like a radio song is a complete departure from uh, from from everything else, and they, they were just started moving in that direction. So, yeah. So, um, live search pageant. That's pretty much the wrap of it. Like like we we said, that's pretty much our our turnaround to actually. We you know we didn't get in. I saw people carry the albums in, in high school of Murmur and some of the other albums. Some guys carry the albums, but I never you know I never understood why they actually liked rem but after last rich pageant i went back bought those albums became mm-hmm. a big fan ever since so that, that's pretty much my story with rem this is the one that started it all you know my only uh claim to fame with rem is that i was driving in austin during south by southwest one year and i was at the stoplight and i looked to the left and there was peter buck walking across the street that's as close as i've ever gotten <laughs> so well besides going and seeing him live a couple times yeah I'm talking about in real life. So. <laughs> well, um, let's see what's uh, there's, there's definitely one song that we got to play from think of a different time. That definitely is. Everybody would hear it be like, guys, boy, you guys really like REM a lot. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No kidding. Last laugh would be that tune. There's, it could have actually been written by them. So that this goes to show you the influence that REM had on, uh, on our bass player, Matt. Yeah, and if you go to our Facebook page, which is the Surrealers, you know, spelled S-U-R-R-E-A-L-T-O-R-S, our Facebook page, you can actually check out the video we just posted for uh, Last Laugh, the long-lost hidden video from all the way from back in, in the 80s. 
uh, late 80s, but uh, here it is now uh, from our album, Think of a Different Time, 86 to 91. It's Last Laugh here on the Surreal that is on. R.E.M. or the Surrealitors? You decide. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> that is Last exactly. Laugh. You can hear that in many of our songs on all streaming sites right now. The Surrealitors, look us up. We sure would appreciate it. And that kind of ends our wrap-up on Life's Rich Pageant. We'll return soon with another podcast. But, George, I believe you have our official ending of the show today. Yes, in the words of the great Jack Buck, the St. Louis Cardinals announcer, we thank you for your time this time. Until next time. So long.